row right here for those of you who are brave. Like those guys. Courageous as they are. Good morning. I have one little announcement that apparently we uh, didn't get this week, and that is just for those of you who are planning to send your kids across the country to Wisconsin, to Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Some of you are planning to send your kids away for a week and go do something else. Um, there's a meeting for you next week right after church. Bring some food. You'll share for a potluck. And those families that are planning on their kids going, you're gonna, this meeting is to help you get ready to figure out what to pack and all those sorts of things so that your, your child gets there with a toothbrush in hand, which is all that everyone, toothbrush and deodorant. Those are probably the two things everyone else wants them to bring. But um, if you can just remember that's next week. It'll be in your bulletin, but by then it'll be too late for you to have really planned for it. So um, just a little bit of reminder for you. We have been talking for the last few weeks about some of the major prophecies in Scripture. We're not trying to cover all of Daniel and Revelation. That would take us a long time. We're just trying to cover some of the major steps and major prophecies in Daniel. We're in Daniel chapter 9 now. Um, if you have your Bible with you, you might want to open there. Um, we'll, the primary things we'll be talking about will be on the screen, but I'll be skipping some verses. You may want to fill in the gaps. Um, as we talk about this this morning, I just remind you where we've been. Remember when we've been talking about Daniel, we've been talking about a few pieces here. We've been talking about the fact that this is a story that has a context and a place in time. That the man Daniel himself is a person. It's a real guy who lived in a real place, who was in exile in a foreign country. And by the time we get to this chapter, he's been in exile for like 65 years. 67, actually, I believe is the number. That's a long time. He's basically lived his entire adult life under Babylonian rule as an exile, as a person who's been taken there forcibly and forced to work in service to the king. So understand the heart of the man, the message to the man and the message to the people. His friends, his family, children that have been born in Babylon know nothing else. There could easily be a 60-year-old, 65-year-old person who has never known anything but Babylonian exile among the Hebrews. That the many, many, many of the older people who were taken there have died in Babylon. A generation has passed away. And there are very few voices like Daniel's left saying there is a place where we belong. There's a land that is ours. There's a country. There's a city that is the, the, that is the city of our God. There was a temple there. And fewer and fewer of those voices are left. And Daniel is writing those last messages of his life to those people. By the time we get to Daniel chapter 7, we've seen Daniel's faithfulness to God. Small things and large things. We've seen Daniel's commitment and God's commitment to him as well. And the story's been telling the people, it's okay, God is with us even when we're not in the place where we belong. We do not belong in the place where we are. We are children of the promise and therefore children of the promised land. And that was true of Daniel's family and it is true of yours. That we are just passing through this planet on our way to a better life and a better place and a, and a, and a city whose founder and maker is God. 
That is Daniel's message. In the end, God is the winner. God is the victor. And you do not have to feel like an exile because you serve a living God who is still on his throne, still caring for you, still loves you. He knows the end from the beginning and he's proved it to you by demonstrating the prophecies that he's sharing. When we get to Daniel chapter 9, we have seen the angst of Daniel building. The angst of Daniel started after his vision in chapter 7 where he was upset After the vision, he was frustrated after the vision because he didn't understand why this 1260 year period, this three and a half times that were in there were related to his people. He didn't understand what that was about. and He was upset by it. Next chapter, chapter eight, he sees this little horn power that he had seen before in chapter seven. Now it's, it's really going for it. It's really taking after the people and it's persecuting the people of God. And now he sees a time prophecy that's 2300 years long. And Daniel comes to the conclusion that most of us would. Lord, are you telling me that the people of Israel are going to be persecuted for another 2,000 years? That's more than I can handle. That's more than I can take. That can't be possible. So Daniel does two things as we begin chapter 9. He starts a research project. He starts researching what he believes to be the prophetic voice about this exile. He starts looking in the text. He starts looking in the scriptures for the answer to his question. And number two, he begins to pray. So we're picking it up at de- in, in the very beginning here. I want you just to catch this, this phrase from Gabriel as he approaches Daniel. Finally, he comes to Daniel with an answer. And he says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sins and the sins of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord, my God, for his holy hill, while I was still in pay- prayer, Gabriel. Do you know what Gabriel did? Gabriel came. While he was still in prayer, Gabriel came. God showed up. Now, I want you to recognize that this man is living now 10 years after chapter 7 or chapter 8. So we've been looking at periods 7, 3 years later, 8, now 10 years later, 9. Okay, this is not happening. Boom, boom, boom. We read this passage as if this happened, then this happened, then this happened. This didn't happen in a week. This happened in a decade. This happened in more than a decade. From seven to nine is 13 years of Daniel's life. 13 years of Daniel's life when Daniel is probably in his 80s. When he's in his 80s, he's waiting on God. He's waiting for an answer. He's coming to God as time is clicking by and time is clicking by and time is clicking by. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was, who was made ruler over Babel, the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last how long? Seventy years. It's been about 67 years as he writes. So what's he expecting the outcome to be? It's okay to answer when I ask a question. It's been 67 years. What's he expecting is going to happen? Very soon, Israel's going home, right? He's expecting very soon that there's going to be a release of the captives and he's going to be able to go home. He's been 67 years waiting. He's gone back and checked the record. I want you to notice what he says. I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah. Do you realize that is the same Jeremiah's book that you have? I don't know if that's cool to you, but it's cool to me. Here's Daniel sitting there in exile off in Babylon in 538 B.C. Rolling out Jeremiah's scroll and reading and reading and reading until he finds that place where Jeremiah says, this is how long you're going to be in exile if you don't straighten up. 
And he discovers that it's 70 years and his heart starts to pound a little harder and his breathing gets a little faster and his eyes start to grow and he goes, man, do you realize it's 67 years now? It's only three more years to the promise of God. And then you have to stop and wonder, is he thinking, okay, now what about this 1260 years when the saints are persecuted by the little horn power? And what about the 2300 years when this power of desolation is going on? I don't understand, God. Is, the, is, the, is it in fact true that Jerusalem is going to remain desolate and the temple is going to remain in its destroyed state for 2000 more years? God, is that, it, it can't possibly be. It can't possibly be. And so he's coming back to God. Worrying about this and worrying about this and worrying about this. You get what I'm doing? You get what he's seeing? Do you understand his heart? Do you understand why he's praying? Would you be praying? Here's the deal, guys. It's a normal response that we're looking at. The prophets and the servants of God from those days to our days suffered the same kinds of worry and struggle and concern that we all have. If we were in his shoes, we would be doing what he did. We'd be looking in our Bible saying, hey, Lord, it looks to me like this thing's about to wrap up. What is this 1260 day thing? What is this 2300 day thing? What's going on? And that's what's frustrating him. That's why his heart is breaking. That's why he's worried. And that's why he's here. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, fast, and in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Do you think he's serious? Yeah, this, these are symbols of the seriousness with which he's praying. I turned to the Lord God and I pled with him. He's very serious. He's in prayer and petition, fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. These are symbols. These are commitments he's making. When they talk about sackcloth and ashes, this is putting on a burlap sack and putting ashes on your head and your face. Okay, this is a commitment, a public commitment to prayer. His fasting is I am not eating until I get an answer here. I am waiting. I am fasting and praying until this happens. We do not take this as seriously as we should. Sometimes we, I think, should be fasting and praying and maybe we should try a little sackcloth and ashes. You know, if you showed up and worked with a burlap sack on one day, people would know something was going on. Right. That was the point of this. It was a public demonstration that he was making a commitment to pray. And that's what he was doing. Now imagine he shows up in the king's palace wearing his sackcloth and ashes that day. What are you praying about, Daniel? What's on your heart? Oh, I just, my, my, my city lies desolate. My temple lies desolate. My people are, are, are captive here in, in Babylon. And I believe that God is saying we will go home in three years. Darius the Mede shows up to be the king. Cyrus marches through the gate. I love the story that must have happened when Cyrus marched through the gate. I think that what happened was Cyrus marched through the gate. Daniel took out his iPad and he said, look at Isaiah right here. Isaiah named you a hundred years ago, Cyrus. You are God's servant. You are here because God sent you. And you can hear it in the statements made by the Persian kings that they believe that Daniel's God is a real God. And in fact, if you know anything about Zoroastrianism, Zoroastrianism is the Persian national religion that flows out of this time period. And it's a monotheistic religion who believes that there will be a Messiah to come. That sounds an awful lot like Daniel's religion, doesn't it? That's the, that becomes the national religion of the people of Persia for the years in the future, for years in the future. Daniel's prayer is selfless. If you're looking through that prayer now in your Bible, he's praying for other people. He's not asking for himself. In fact, we don't even think Daniel went home with the rest of the people. There's no record that Daniel went back to Israel. 
He may have, but he would have been a very, very old man at the time. He probably doesn't even expect to return home. But the generations that are living there, he's praying for them. He's praying for others. He's praying that the people of Israel will be returned to their place, to the place of the promise. His, his prayer is in earnest. It's committed. It's deep. He's committed to doing this. He has a deep desire to see God follow through in this. His prayer is direct. He asks God for what he wants. I'd like you to think about praying in this way. Praying selflessly, pray, praying in earnest, and in praying in a way that is very direct. Many, many times we pray in such a nebulous way, we wouldn't know if God answered. Dear Lord, bless my family. Okay. How about the sun tomorrow? We'll let it come up on your family. That'll be a blessing. Right? We don't know. We don't, we don't stop to pray significantly or directly enough to even know most of the time when God is answering our prayers. Praying selflessly, earnestly, and directly. That's a good example of what we should be doing about prayer. This is not a message on prayer. We could stop and talk about Daniel's prayer for a long time. If you haven't read it recently, take a look at it. It's a beautiful example of prayer. A beautiful example of the prayer of a committed heart. At the beginning of your supplications. Now, Daniel's been praying for several verses here. At the beginning of your supplication, the command went out. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly what? Beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. What is about to happen to Daniel? He's about to get an answer. He's about to get a clear answer on what he's worried about. But I want you to notice something else. Daniel, you are greatly beloved. Beloved by who? By God. I want to talk to you if you're in your 70s today or above. Okay, so listen up. If you're in your 70s and up, okay? So many of us, when we reach that age, when we pass retirement and we move into our 70s and 80s, we think we are no longer of value to God. Because we can't lift heavy things and we can't do what we used to do and we don't remember as well as we once did. It is so not the truth. Daniel is beloved of God. And Daniel's, Daniel's prayers are heard in the courts of heaven. Yours are too. Please understand that as long as you are breathing, you are of value to God on the earth in the battle that is between he and Satan. In the battle for the kingdom, in the battle for souls. You are a very valuable tool in the hand of God. Speak your prayers into the throne of heaven. Take the time that has been given you and use it for the kingdom. Pray for your family. Never stop praying for your family. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for this country. Pray for the people around you. If you can do nothing else, prayer is one of the most significant things you can do. All the other things we do are enlightened and empowered by prayer. You know, we go out so often in our youth and we pick up the shovel and we start to work. Not realizing that without prayer behind what we're doing, there is so little effect in the end. There's almost none. I just want to encourage you. Pray, pray, pray. And if you're a, if you're a retired and looking for something to do, call the church. We'll find something. But I want you to understand, 
Daniel probably went when he was in his teens. Most people think around 15 to 17 years old. He's been in Babylon for 67 years. How old is this guy? He's in his 80s. And God says, I've been listening to you. I've heard your prayers. I'm here to answer. You are my beloved. He says, 70 weeks are determined for your people, for the holy city, to finish transgressions, to make an end to sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. If this were the to-do list that you were given, how would you handle it? Here's your to-do list, church. Here's what you're going to do. Rockland, this is Grace Point. This is your, your to-do list. 70 weeks. We're giving you 490 years. We're going to give you, in the next 490 years, you need... To uh, finish transgression, that'd be good, I'd like to have that done with. Put an end to sin, we're all in favor of that, correct? Right? Just making sure. To make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and oh by the way, to anoint the most holy. If this were the to-do list, would it be a little overwhelming to you? Yeah, I believe it was overwhelming to him as well. Realizing what's going on here is beyond the reach of any human being. Do you recognize that? This is a list that is beyond the reach of a human. This is a list that requires God's intervention. In fact, this is a list that requires God to do it, right? So what does Daniel have to recognize from this list? This is a list of God's activities through the people of Israel that he is intending to quit. He is intending to finish in the next 490 years. Do you see that? Nodding is okay, as long as it's not one of those long nods. Okay? So you got the idea, right? This is, a, this is a list where God is saying to the people of Israel, this is what I'm going to be doing. This is my intention for your people over the next 490 years. This is, what's, this is what I'm going to be up to, up to with the people of Israel. Do you think this makes Daniel happy? You know what it says? It says, for the next 500 years, I'm, I'm with you. I'm working with you. I, in fact, am intending to bring along the Messiah in about 490 years. Would that make you happy? Absolutely. If you're Daniel and you're waiting for the Messiah, the only thing bad about this is it's not sooner. The only thing bad about it is you're not going to see him in your lifetime. But he's saying the people of Israel are still going to be my people, the people of the promise. I'm still going to be working through them, and I'm intending to bring the Messiah to them in the next five centuries. You got it? You see the information coming out to Daniel. Okay? I think Daniel's beginning to appreciate the length of the, of the, the uh, prophecies he's been seeing. He's beginning to understand that there's a lot going on for a long time. With God. Okay? The the text continues. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah the Prince. Until when? Until the Messiah the Prince. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. We've looked and we've looked and we've looked and we don't really have an understanding of what those seven weeks are. But we know that seven and 62 is 69. That's as far as we get here. We haven't figured out a lot about that first seven weeks. There's some speculation on this happening and that happening and the other thing happened. We just don't have a lot of records. There's a vacuum in the record there. There's not really much in terms of Persians, the Greeks, the, Jew, the, the Maccabees records. There's just not a lot in there about these, uh, this first 
seven weeks. We do know that 69 is what, 70, what 7 and 62 make. So we're looking at 69 weeks until when? The Messiah, the Prince. Okay? Now I want you to catch a couple quick things. There were three decrees given to send Israel back to Jerusalem. Okay? Right after Daniel's prayer, right about three years later, at the end of the 70 years that Jeremiah predicted, guess what? Right on time, Cyrus the Persian says, you can go home. You can rebuild your temple. And so a group of Israelites went home right on time, as God predicted through Jeremiah. Is that good news to you? It's good news to the front half. It's good news to the back half. Okay, here's what I want you to think about. God does things in a plan on time. If he says he's going to do things, he does it when he says he's going to do it. He had told them through Jeremiah, this is what I'm going to do. You're going to be in exile. It's a long time. You're going to be there 70 years. When that 70 years was up, they went home. Okay, the first degree, they could go home and start building the temple. And they did. They started having sacrifices. They started being involved with building the temple. There's a second decree that sends some more of them home about five years later. And those people, again, are working on the temple. Okay, what was the message from the decree to the going forth of the decree to restore and rebuild the temple? Jerusalem to the Messiah, the Prince. So they have not yet been given permission to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. This last decree, it's a rather lengthy one, I've just given you a couple lines of it. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. So Ezra's going back and he says, anybody who wants to go can go with you. Okay? In this decree is where we find Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of the city of Jerusalem. So this is when they start. This is the third of the decrees. From Daniel 9, it's 81 years before this decree. Have you ever heard me talk about the speed of the fawn? That God does things at the speed of the fawn. You plant the acorn in and it grows at the speed of the fawn. We are in such a rush. We see the whole world in one lifetime. In 75 years, if it hasn't happened, it's not going to happen. Our whole world has passed by. It's done. 81 years before they finally get the, re- the statement. Go and rebuild Jerusalem's walls. Build the defenses around the city. Reestablish the city. In fact, we know they're doing it because the people in the west where Jerusalem is complain. We have that decree in the book as well. They're complaining. They're rebuilding the walls. You know what's going to happen? As soon as they rebuild the walls of this city, they're going to rebel. This is a rebellious city. They're not going to send their taxes in. And the government stops them. You tell the government taxes are not coming. They are going to stop whatever you're doing. Okay? That's what happened in history here. So here's a a quick picture. And I recognize I'm going through this thing quickly. I'm going through it quickly because I don't have any more time than this. Okay? 457 B.C. is Artaxerxes' decree to send them back and let them rebuild the city. A.D. 27, the Messiah, the Prince, there's your 69 weeks. Do you see it? Seven weeks and 62 weeks. You got it across there? The reason you, don't, the reason you have this, the, the seven weeks and the 62 weeks, you, the reason you have, if you're doing your quick math, the reason you're not coming out at 27, you're coming out at 28, is because there's no zero year. When you pass over, you just go one to one. So you've got, if you've come to 28, that's your problem. Take out your extra year. Okay, Jesus is is cut off in the midst of that week. And then in AD 34, the gospel stops being preached 
the last prophetic utterance is given to Israel. And it's on the voice of Stephen who looks up into the heavens and says, I see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the father. From that point on, the prophets speak to the Christian church. They don't speak to Judaism, to Israel and to its leaders. Okay. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor over Judea, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. He went into all the regions around Jordan, preaching, baptizing, repentance, and for the mission of sin. Why are we in the New Testament? Because we're trying to figure out if 27 AD works out where Jesus actually becomes anointed. This is 27 AD, and you know how we know? It's the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. We know when that happened. Now, he gives a whole list of things. He's got Pontius, Pilate, Herod. He's got names of everybody and their brother in this chapter. But what we know from Tiberius is that we're at 2780. Okay, that's how we know that date. The, the passage continues. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And the voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. And you, I am well pleased. This is the inauguration of the ministry of Jesus. It wasn't Jesus' birth that was being predicted. It was Jesus' messianic ministry that was being predicted. You got that? Are you following all this? I'm throwing a lot of facts at you fast. I promise it's going to get more interesting. Some of you look like, okay, we're doing the math. Yeah, 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 yeah. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. So he hears that the Messiah is going to come. In, in 500 years, Daniel, I promise we're going to show you the Messiah. The Messiah is going to be there. But here's the problem. In the middle of that week, in the middle of the last week, the reason I've only given you 69 weeks, Daniel, is because after that last week, after that last one, during that last set of sevens, he's going to be cut off. In the middle of that one, he's going to be cut off. Verse 27a, then he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. How did Jesus bring an end to sacrifice and offering? What caused the temple to be torn from top to bottom? The crucifixion of Jesus. When the Lamb of God died for the people of God, there was no longer a need for any more lambs. There were no longer a need for prophecy or for, for the temple and its services. It was done because Jesus had fulfilled it. There was no longer a need. More bad news. Now back at 26B, he goes, 26A, he gives you the Messiah is going to be cut off and he gives the message about the temple. 27A, he gives the Messiah. And then 27B, he gives the temple. He's talking about two elements at one time. Here's the second half. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end of it shall be with a flood till the end of the war. The desolations are determined. He says, here's the deal, here's the, the deal man. He said, you're going to go back. You're going to rebuild Jerusalem. You're going to see the Messiah. The, the, Israel's going to be in the palm of God's hand for 500 years. And then the prince to come, the one you've been watching, that power you've been watching, that horrible power that came up out of the ocean in seven. Remember that? And that little horn power that came out in eight. You remember that? That's coming. And when it comes, it's going to destroy the city and the temple. And Daniel's heart is broken. And Daniel has looked into the future and he's seen a future he doesn't like. He's seen a future that he's not happy about. Any of you ever read Revelation and go, oh man, this is scary? Yeah. Because we look at that and we say, man, I'm not sure I even want to be alive when that happens. Two things to remember about it. God is still on his throne through all of these things. When Jesus is on the cross, God is on the throne. 
when the city of Jerusalem is finally made desolate, God is still on his throne. And let me remind you of of one one little bitty piece about this. The reason the Romans come in is not because the Romans decided they one day they were going to destroy the city of Jerusalem and the temple. They tried really hard not to destroy the city of Jerusalem and the temple. The reason they did it was because of the rebellion of the people. And if we had more time to dig into Daniel in these last few verses, I can show you out of the verse where the text speaks to their rebellion, not the Roman uh, violence as the cause. I want to get this last piece. He will confirm his covenant. He will what? Confirm his covenant. You know the Bible has a term for writing a new covenant? When we talk about a a, a contract, we said, oh yeah, she and he signed a contract, right? That's our shorthand for the whole contract was read, they they figured it all out and they signed it. When they sign the contract, the contract is settled, right? In the Bible, it's called cutting off a contract. I don't know why it's called that. Maybe because you've got to peel the hide off an animal or something to write this thing down. But it's called cutting a new contract or cutting off a contract. They cut off a covenant. Now, for us, cutting off a covenant seems like you've destroyed it. But biblically, when you're making a new covenant, you're cutting it off. Okay? You notice Jesus is not cutting a new covenant? He's confirming a covenant with the people. For those that last week, Jesus is pleading with the people of Israel not to abandon the covenant they made with God. In that last week, God is trying to reach out to Israel. He is trying to touch them and bring them and draw them. And the final, the capstone on all of that is the cross of Jesus. In that crucifixion, in that moment, they should have understood. This is why Stephen being the end of this thing is so important. Because the gospel keeps being preached at Jerusalem and preached at Jerusalem and preached at Jerusalem. Why? Because God is still trying to confirm the covenant with the people of Israel. Israel has crucified his son and he is still trying to rescue Israel and draw them back into their covenant relationship with him. Finally, with the stoning of Stephen, remember the story. Stephen goes about telling this this, uh, long history of Israel. It seems weird when you're reading it in Acts. He's recounting all this history of Israel. It's great because you get a quick summary, but it seems kind of a weird thing for him to be doing. But it's also a very technical thing he's doing. He is filing a lawsuit against the covenant. Read your Old Testament. Every time God files a lawsuit where the covenant is mentioned, history of God's interaction with the people is restated. It's basically, look, God has been keeping his side of the covenant, and here again, 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 and here again. And God is not failing you. You've been failing God. And when he says it, here's the capstone of this thing. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit that what your ancestor, that's what your ancestors did and so did you? Then even, they even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. He is laying out the rules of the covenant. He's saying, God has always been faithful to you and here's how you've responded. That's why this, this moment when Stephen speaks to them before the leadership, before the Sanhedrin, is such a key picture of this whole prophetic era. Because what's about to happen is the door of prophets speaking to the leadership of Israel is about to be slammed shut. This is a last voice to them. 
When this last voice closes, do you remember what they do next? They become so angry, they take Stephen outside of the city and they stone him to death. And at that moment, a young man named Saul, who will become Paul, is standing there watching. And it begins to change him. And in the next few days, his conversion takes place. We know this date of 34 AD for Stephen because Paul tells us that he's in Corinth 15 years later when a guy named Galileo is the, is the uh, uh, head of that city. This guy was the head of the city for only one year. Pretty easy to figure that one out. Count backwards 15 years and you find Stephen Stoney. What I want you to see in this is the solid nature of the facts that are being presented from Daniel to Jesus. 500 years later, Daniel is laying out the facts. He is saying, this is what's happening. If you struggle with believing the Bible, these prophecies are solid ground. They are really solid ground. God is revealing to the people of Israel what's coming. He's telling them factually, this is it, and this is it, and this is it. And then we turn the history books and we look at the stories. There they are, exactly as described. This 457 date for Artaxerxes' decree is based on three different calendaring methods. The internal Persian and Babylonian calendars, the Greek calendars, and a calendar called the Elephantine calendar. What's actually the Elephantine calendar is a bunch of letters from some Jewish guys on the island, on a small island in the Nile, serving in the military under the Persians. And they're sending letters home. And guess what they do when they send letters? They write the dates on the letters. We were digging around in some dirt over there and we found these guys' letters home. And they use both Persian and Egyptian records as they put down the numbers for the dates. And so we can look at those and say, yep, this is pretty pretty well nailed down. We're not guessing here. We're not projecting our hope into history. This is factual information you can hang your heart and your faith on. But the story is not over. Because this story ends with the covenant being rejected by Israel, right? The covenant people reject the covenant of God. The Israelites are no longer the covenant people of God. They're rejecting it and it's being handed off to a different people. A people without a land, without a temple, without a priesthood. They're not even a nation. They're just a hodgepodge group of people who seem to decide to follow the Nazarene rabbi. Us. And the covenant promises are handed off to you and to me. The lawsuit against Israel ended with Israel losing. But remember, judgment is found on behalf of the saints. You see, your ethnic background doesn't decide if you are a saint. Your hand in the hand of Jesus is what decides if you are a saint. In God's economy, all that matters is that you believe in Him and you trust in His Son and you follow. That defines you as a changed person and a saint. No more priesthood, no more temple, no more promised land, only Jesus. And it's enough. It's more than enough. So today, the reason we're doing uh, 
this covenant conversation. And the reason we have the communion things out here today is because this covenant was handed to you and to me. And the, the, the tools of the covenant were given to us as well. The commitments of the covenant were given to us as well. We were invited into this covenant. And you know what? Praise God. Circumcision is no longer the sign that you're a believer. Every man in here should be thankful. Baptism is. I've given my heart to Jesus and I have gone into the waters of baptism. I have been covered over by his, by, by that, the waters. I have come out a transformed different person because I have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. You no longer go to the city to celebrate the activities that's, that demonstrated the activity of God in the land of Israel. You no longer go and sacrifice at Passover to remind yourself of the blood that was spread on the doorpost. You no longer go to the temple and shout for the, shout for the atonement of God and no longer watch the priest go in and atone for your, the sacrifice, the sins of the people and carry out those sins and place them on the head of a goat. No longer there. Jesus took all the sins away. Instead, we are covenanting with God in the communion, in the very act of taking that crucified Christ on ourselves as our own. So we're going to celebrate the communion in the next few minutes. And as we pass the emblems, what I want you to understand about these emblems, are these are the emblems of a new covenant. These are the emblems of the transfer of the covenant to you and to me. So Greg and I are going to, come, going to lead you through this experience. As we do, I just want you to remember what it is. And I want you to recognize you're invited into it. We are all invited into this covenant relationship. When I told Greg we were going to do the wine first, he said... The bread goes first. It depends. If you read Luke, the wine goes first. It depends on where you're reading. So if you're if you're always were a little confused on this, it's because the Bible is different, depending on who starts who you're reading. Okay? So I want to remind you, this is an invitation into the covenant from God. He said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and pass it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Let's pray.